this is number four in a, a series called Rhythms of Grace. And uh, next week, Saturday night, I'll start on the Daniel series. It's called The Last Days on Fallen Earth. It's the prophecies starting in Daniel chapter six, really matching them up with, with what's going on today. I'm excited about that. That's next Saturday night. But as for today, I'm honored to be here to cover for my parents. And where we've been is Ecclesiastes 9, 11, and 12, the last few weeks. It says, uh, this is uh, King Solomon, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. That word happeneth means right happenings or right place, right time, or in what he's talking about here is wrong place, wrong time. For in verse 12, nine, <laughs> that was 9.11, Ecclesiastes 9.11, and this is uh, 9.12, for man also knoweth not his time, as the fishes are taken in an evil net, as they were on 9.11, and as the birds that are caught in the snare, so are the sons of men snared in an evil time. When it falleth suddenly upon them. He's talking about being in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time. And remember that word that, that but time and chance happeneth to them all means right place, right time. In the Hebrew, it's the word quora in the Hebrew language. Now, that word right after happeneth to, happeneth to them all, to is two Hebrew letters. We went over this last week. Aleph Tav. In the Hebrew, okay, that's the first and last letters in the Hebrew alphabet, just like A and Z would be for the English. So Aleph Tav is being the first and last letters in the Hebrew alphabet, looking at Revelation, Jesus saying, I'm the Alpha and Omega. Those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's leaving us a signature in Ecclesiastes 9.11 by having the Hebrew letters Aleph Tav, which are incorrectly translated to, to, following a word that actually means right place, right time, okay? In other words, it's Jesus leaving us his signature in Ecclesiastes 9.11, or you could say the Holy Spirit leaving the signature of Jesus in regards to putting you in the right place at the right time. And really, we've been connecting this scripture to Matthew 11:28 through 30 out of the message. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, he says. These are the words of Jesus. Get away with me. You'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn from him the unforced rhythms of grace. There's a rhythm to grace. There's a rhythm to receiving and walking in the undeserved favor of God or not walking in it. You can be in the wrong rhythm I, I've been in, have you ever been just in the wrong rhythm in the grocery store? I mean, I, I, it, there was a day my daughter was visiting a few weeks ago, and we're in Whole Foods, and we're looking for uh, these low-sodium juices. I was just going to do some kind of cleanse or something, and, and so I was buying the, these, these, these juices, and it's just like everywhere we went, there's someone right next to me. And, and I would turn around, and they'd be like, like a weird man, just right here. Or, you know, I'm trying to look, you know, in the dairy section, and 
the girl's just pushing her, you know, like right in front of where I'm trying to look. No matter where I'm trying to look, there she is, and she's looking at me too. And I just commented, you know, to my daughter, I said, you know, it's just, it's just not a good rhythm here, is it? And she says, that's because of the, the, the way you came in, Dad. You, you came in a certain way, and it's almost like you're attracting this, right? You're, 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 you're just attracting people that are looming around you and being weird, <laughs> weird, okay? And so you can be in a, in a good rhythm of grace or a bad rhythm just in your daily walk, He says, I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. He says, keep company with me, and you'll learn to live live freely and lightly, freely and lightly. And so early on in the first message, I brought this story up back on December 4th. We looked at it, but I've got a little bit more to it. it. Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village. A certain woman named Martha received him into her house, and she had a visitor a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard what he was saying, heard his word. But Martha, overly occupied, too busy, was distracted with so much serving. She came up to him and said, Lord, it is, no, is it nothing to you that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell, tell her then to help me to lend a hand and do her part. And he says, but the Lord replied to her, he says, Martha, Martha. Martha, Martha, you're, you're anxious and troubled about many things. Luke 10, 42, but one thing is needful, is what he says. And Mary hath chosen that, that, the one thing that's needful, and it shall not be taken away. So we have Jesus saying one thing is needful, and he's talking about what Mary is doing. She's at his feet. She's hearing his word. We're talking about Jesus being able to get us into the right place at the right time. But remember, in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, he says, come to me, get away with me, walk with me, work with me, keep company with me. This is how you do it. You'll experience recovery of things. You'll be rested. Nothing will be too heavy. Everything will seem to fit right. This is how you know you're walking in it because you'll be walking in a rhythm of grace and it's never forced. It never has to be forced. So he told Martha, one thing is needful, sitting at his feet, and you could say hearing his word, listening to his word, reading his word, speaking his word, or just sitting at his feet in his presence. And it's my opinion that this is the main way you come to Jesus, that you walk with Jesus, that you work with Jesus, that you keep company with Jesus, is through his word. She was sitting at his feet, hearing what he was saying. And this is the main way God is going to talk to you, is being in his word. Yes, you can connect through praise and worship. You can connect through praying in tongues. You can connect through meditation. But the main thing is you've got to have his word. Because he says it. He says that is the one needful thing. What Mary was doing, what is she doing? Listening to what he said. So we've been talking about God getting you into the right place at the right time, and have covered so many points on that, but what people don't understand about his word, and I know this is just basic, but exactly what it actually does. On July 24th, on a Saturday night, I did a a service called Deliverance with the Word, 
And the word is how you get delivered. And where I went into a 20, the 26 translation Bible, it's like for every scripture, there's like there's six or seven tra- different translations from six or seven different scholars. And in, in other words, you know, I don't think you'll personally grow if you pray in tongues three hours a day and you never do anything relative to this. You won't grow. You will worship God all day, but your spirit man, your candle will not grow. It will not, it will not be brighter if you are not in the word in some way. Look at Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's a lot. It's, it's a lot that it does. And until really trying to break it down out of the, the, this translation Bible, you know, ASV, quick, the word of God is quick means living. I never knew that. I always thought, it's not that quick. It's not that quick. I mean, it's not, it doesn't happen like that all the time. No, no, it's a living thing is what that means. It's, uh, uh, Rotherham, J.B. Rotherham calls it, uh, out of the RHM version, calls it, it means energetic. The word of God is energetic. The Moffat translation calls it an actual living thing. It's a living thing. So it's, this, it's, it, the word of God is a living thing. It's energetic, quick, and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Just taking a phrase from the NOR, that is the New Testament translation, by, by a guy named Norley. He's a scholar. Let me tell you what he calls piercing even to the dividing of the soul and spirit. Mr. Norley, probably Dr. Norley, says it penetrates deeply, and he says dividing asunder means making a distinction between soul and spirit, or you could say a distinction between your regular thoughts and the Holy Spirit coming with, from within you. So, you know, how, how many times do we, is that God? Did God tell me that? Did God tell me that? Well, is that in the word? The first place you look, is that in the word? Is that in the word, what he's telling me? So let's read what we have. We, the word of God is a living thing, quick, energetic, powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. It penetrates deeply, making a distinction between your actual thoughts and your spirit man. What your spirit man is trying to say. And the joints and marrow, a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know what the Weymouth translation says of the joints and marrow? To your innermost parts. It goes to your innermost parts, body and soul and spirit. The Phillips says joints and marrow means, and I never knew this, to the innermost intimacies. So that has to do with your soul, all your hurts, all the, the agitations, the agitating passions, the moral dilemmas, all the, any confusion, it, it, joints and marrow means your innermost intimacies. We're talking about what the word does. Jesus calls it the one thing that's needful. And looking at Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living thing, quick, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a weapon, piercing even to the dividing of your actual thoughts and what your spirit man is saying and of the innermost intimacies of your being, a discerner of the thoughts and tents of the heart. 
I love what J.B. Rotherham, RHM version, I love how he describes a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Just because of one word here. He says this means in the Greek language, it judges the impulses and designs of your heart. Knowing that in the past I've been a very impulsive person, I'm, I'm just... I've, I'm scared to walk in these shoes because they're kind of slippery, you know? Knowing that, that in the past, I've been a very impulsive person. So, so what it says is if you've been impulsive because not all impulses are bad, the Holy Spirit can judge that impulse for you before you act if you're in that rhythm. If you'll try to line up with that impulse, that impulse with the Holy Spirit or even what the, what, what the word just flat says. Are you full of cares like Martha? See, it's hard to do this when you've got a heavy load. Uh, uh, you're, you're thinking of all the people, all the things, all the finances, whatever it is. So we've gone to great scrutiny here in Hebrews 4.12. So so can we take it through? And I wanted to put this on the screens for you. And I'm really just using the Bible to bring together all these Greek scholars that are translating this verse to make you understand this in ways that maybe you never caught the full meaning. Maybe it just reminds you. It says, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God, it's, it's, it's number four, is quick, living, energetic, and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword. It strikes to the place where the soul and spirit meet. In other words, it tells you, is that your spirit or is that just your mind, will, and emotions? It penetrates deeply, making a distinction between soul and spirit, piercing even to a dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. Yes, to the innermost parts of you, to the innermost intimacies of a man or woman's being and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, able to judge the impulses and designs of the heart. And it helps you to judge the impulses and designs of other people's hearts. If you're paying attention, if you're, if, you're, if you're paying attention, so why is Jesus saying, so just one thing is needful? Because it's a living thing. It's powerful. And it's energetic. It's a weapon that separates the situation and your soul and is talking about what your spirit is talking. It will get into the innermost intimacies of your being. It will help you judge not just the impulses and designs of your own heart, but the impulses and designs of others. Quickly i.e. the gifts of the Spirit, i.e. word of wisdom, word of knowledge. The word of wisdom, word of knowledge. So let's take a look and put Mary, how, how this put Mary at the right place at the right time. If we go to the story about Mary and Martha and Jesus and we fast forward approximately a few days before Jesus died on the cross. In John 12, 1 through 8, I'm gonna paraphrase a lot of this. So at this time, you have Mary bringing a costly oil and her anointing the feet of Jesus at the anointing Jesus at his feet in the presence of Lazarus and Martha. Lazarus was her brother, and Judas actually complains it's a waste of oil. Jesus defended Mary. He says, "Leave her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial." Those are key words. Key words. John 12, 7, then Jesus said, let her alone. Against the day of my bearing has she kept this. 
You know what Jesus also said about this very thing in Mark 14, 9. Verily, I say unto you, whosoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world. Think about this. This is 2,000 years ago. This also that she hath done shall be spoken of a memorial of her. Well, he was right. It's being told today. It's being told somewhere every Sunday around the world. Somewhere she's still being talked about. The story's still being told. But, and he's saying, she's anointing me for my burial, is what he's saying. So you have Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. Later, she's in the right place at the right time to anoint the Son of God for burial. How do we know that? Because that's what he said. And on the morning that Jesus rose from the dead, you had some women go to the tomb. They were actually bringing spices to anoint his dead body. He's already been anointed by Mary a few days earlier. These women arrived to the tomb too late because he'd already risen from the dead. See, unlike Mary, they were not able to do the right thing at the right time. But you had Mary a few days earlier. She was at his feet, quickly paraphrasing another Bible story about being in the right place at the right time. These things are all over the Bible. And it's all wrapped up here in in humility. And it's so connected to grace, humility. First Peter 5, 5 through 7. But I'd just like to point something out about David as, as just kind of a side note. You know, in 1 Samuel 15, when the prophet Samuel came to the home of Jesse, that's David's father, to anoint a new king for the nation, they had all seven of David's brothers lined up before the prophet. And I'm willing to bet you each one of them thought they would be anointed king that day. Because, but they weren't. They weren't because they weren't the chosen one. And when they finally got David into the house, Samuel anointed him as the future king. Like why wasn't he originally included? He was out in the fields taking care of the family's sheep. And the fact that he wasn't even included in the lineup probably says he was somewhat neglected or at least ignored. And just like David, you you could be the neglected one in your family because of labels that have been put on you. You could be the neglected one even at your job or in your high school or maybe when it comes to friends, but God does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 6 and 7 you know, paraphrasing verse 6, this one of David's brothers, Eliab, the eldest, Samuel thought, this is it. This is the guy. The prophet thought, this is the guy. And the Lord said to him in verse 7, 16, 7, but the Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him, for the Lord seeth not as a man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh at the heart. Remember we talked about the thoughts and intents of the heart coming from the word. And as we can see, if you turn to Acts 13, 22, there's a little bit more about David. People love to say he's a man after God's own heart. But God also said something else about him that really ties into walking in the unforced rhythms of grace. So you could say walking more regularly than not in the will of God. That's what that is. I mean, isn't that what you want to do? On a regular basis, walk in the will of God. Acts 13, 22, and when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king. 
To whom also he gave their testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. So again, out of the big, the big 26 translation Bible, listen to what they say just on that verse out of the Weymouth. He's a man I love. Third, um, the RSV, a man after my heart. Uh, BAS, a man dear to my heart. I like this one. The BER, a man agreeable to my mind. In other words, he agrees with me. If he agrees with God, that means he looks for what God is saying. And, and again, the, the King James, which shall fulfill all my will, ASV, who shall do all my will, the TCNT, who will carry out all my purposes. The GSPD, who will do all that I desire. The WMS, who will do all that my will requires. The BER, who will carry out my whole program. So it's not just that he's a man after his own heart, but he's going to carry out his whole program to the end, good or bad, no matter what happens to him. No matter how bad it goes, he's going to carry it out. N-O-R, who will do what I want him to do. So if you're walking in the will of God more often than not, you're going to find yourself in the right place at the right time. It's pretty well-known fact that David spent a lot of time at the feet of God. But you know what David did after he was anointed king? He went straight back to the field with the sheep. His family rejection, I mean, I would have left so bugged. Yeah, that showed them. They didn't even call me in there. I'm the one that got it. <laughs> he was happy to let his brothers entertain the prophet. Imagine being picked out and anointed to be king in a nation of people when you're like 16 years old. I would be like, is, is there special training? Is anyone I, that can show me the ropes here? He went back to the feet to the sheep. Eventually, the call came when King Saul, oppressed by an evil spirit, and only David had the anointing to play the harp so that the evil spirit would get off the king. And do you know what David did after serving the king as his personal demon exercising musician? He went back to the fields again, he became a shepherd again. He was not seeking wealth. He wasn't seeking power. And if you really think about it, he could have taken advantage of that. Again, he gets called out of the fields. He had to take a food delivery to the battlefield for his brothers. He wasn't there to fight Goliath. He was there delivering cheese to his brothers. At the right place, at the right time. But once he got there, he still had to do something. in that high pressure situation against a nine-foot killer. He basically killed and decapitated a warrior, a renowned warrior more than nine feet tall. After he killed Goliath, I think it's interesting, David goes before King Saul, and the king was so blind and self-absorbed, he didn't even recognize David. King Saul didn't even realize it was the same boy that played the harp and was able to exercise the demon off of him. 
1 Samuel 17, 58, and Saul said to him, whose son art thou? Thou, thou, thou young man? And David answered, I'm the son of thy servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. I'd be like, I'm the guy that's going to replace you because I've already been anointed. Maybe. Or maybe, I'm the one that played the harp and made the demon run away from your psycho self. Or maybe, maybe we'd be like, well, who, who am I? You can just call me the giant killer. But he replies, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse. After bringing down a trained warrior over nine feet tall, no one in the whole army wanted a piece of Goliath. I really, you could say after destroying Israel's number one enemy, he says, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse. David didn't need people to flatter him. He didn't need people to make him feel good. He didn't need people to, to get around. The, he didn't need to get around the popular people, uh, the important people, the connected people, the popular crowd in school to prop up his ego. I'm pretty sure he found his security and satisfaction right there in the field. As we can see in the Psalms, look at all the Psalms he wrote. We're talking about not worrying about your position, your power, your prestige, your promotion. We're talking about being absorbed with the person of Jesus Christ. You know, another example, right place, right time. These are all over the Bible. Ruth was not a Jewish woman, yet she ends up in the genealogy of Jesus with Rahab the harlot and Bathsheba. So think about that, all right? How did Ruth, of all these people, end up in Jesus' family tree? She married a man named Boaz. Ruth's story is basically a story of God's grace in spite of them being under the old covenant law. I'm gonna paraphrase a lot of it. You know, it starts out with Ruth, Ruth's husband had died. So she renounced her Moabite gods and follows Naomi, who is her Jewish mother-in-law, back to the land of Israel. They're both very poor. So Ruth takes a low-end job as something called a gleaner. A gleaner would follow a reaper through the field. The reaper, which was a better job than a gleaner, would cut the harvest of wheat and barley, and the gleaners would follow the reapers, picking up whatever the reaper had missed. So Ruth 2, 1, in Bethlehem, you have Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband. Remember, Naomi is Ruth's mother-in-law, and her son, i.e., Ruth's husband, had died. So Ruth, Ruth 2, 1, it says, Boaz was a great man of wealth. Ruth 2, 2. Ruth the Moabitess said to uh, Naomi, let me go into the field, glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. Wow. Or favor. She said unto her, go, my daughter. Basically, she's telling Naomi she's going to go to the field and find grace or favor. She really didn't even know which field she would wind up in. She had expectation. She already had an expectation of being in the right place at the right time, did she not? She, she spoke it. She spoke it. She just happens to come to a part of the field belonging to this wealthy bachelor named Boaz. And in those days, the fields were gigantic and owned by a lot of different people. 
Ruth 2.3, she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap, pay attention to that word, was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. So what is the word hap? It's the same word in Ecclesiastes 9.11, that quora, right place, right time. Ecclesiastes 9.11, real quick. See down there that last sentence? Happened, same word. Right place, right time. It means right happening or you happen to be in the right place at the right time. It's also where we get the word happy. So long story short, Ruth looking for the favor of God as she said, or, or grace, as she said, I'm looking for it, just happens to be in the right place in the right time in the field belonging to Boaz. So it just happened that Boaz came along at that time, falls in love immediately. <laughs> and so now she suddenly, she was in a very unsecure financial situation. The Bible makes that clear. Because she happened, Cora, right happenings, right place, right time. She becomes financially secure for the rest of her life, just like that. Just like that. I just don't feel like in this day and age, being in the right place at the right time is something you can take lightly. Terrorist activities, school shootings, work shootings, rise in natural disasters. We should be aware of him. On a daily basis, I'm just trying to make you more, more aware of Jesus. Even if it's just putting him on the cross in front of you throughout the day. The Holy Spirit within us actually using your body as a home to get you into the right place at the right time. So you're at least not in the wrong place at the wrong time. The devil wants to make us fearful he has a hard time attacking our bodies or attacking our emotions or our circumstances unless you're full of cares, okay? The cares and anxiety that we're being bombarded with usually coming somewhere from people, right? Uh, demonic activity usually using people, You know, I was speaking of worries and cares. First, first Peter um, 5, you have 14 commands in these verses, one, verses 1 through 11. But this is verse, verse 5, 1 Peter 5, 5. You know, this is a lost, something that's just lost today. Likewise, younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Oh, my gosh. Try coaching a bunch of 16-year-olds. Right? I'll tell you, it is lost, gone. You know, <laughs> kids aren't even taught how to deal with adults. You know, teenager, you get a teenager, you just, hey, how you doing? What's your name? You know, that, that uncomfortable, he just stares at you. He stares at you like you're nothing. You know, my dad would have just smacked me in the head when I was a kid. I'm doing fine, sir. How are you? And you look them in the eye, right? They're not taught that. They're, they're on their phones. 24-7. And it, it doesn't help in the job market. We don't know how to deal with your elders. But notice it's talking about this. All of you have to be subject to someone. It's saying that. 
It's saying that. And be clothed with humility. So this is all about humility. God resists the proud, gives grace. We're talking about walking in the rhythms of grace. Gives grace to the humble. And then it says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. The statement's not over because you got a colon there. It's not end of the, the phrase. How do you do that? Casting all your cares, all your anxieties, all your worries, all your concerns. It's really a practiced kind of thing. And you know what I've noticed? Because I've done it. I've done it a lot this week. You know when it hits, it, you're expecting now for the load to be lifted. But a lot of times, if you do it four or five times one day, the next day, you'll find yourself lighter. Like it didn't, it didn't come right, right now because you're expecting just to be gone. And when it's not, right? Brother Hagen used to say, well, it's like a, a fly stick in the fly paper, you know? Keep, keep doing it. And Paul says to practice these things in Philippians. It says, cast all your cares, all your concerns, all your worries, all your anxieties, once and for all on him. Because he cares for you affectionately and about you watchfully. Now, now but listen, it's, it's saying this in context with you're prideful if you're not. He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Casting your cares. In other words, if you don't give God your cares... You're too prideful to do it. You're a fixer like me. You want to fix it. Fix it immediately. And then, it's, it's still not over the next verse. Wow, we all know this one. So be sober, vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a, as a roaring lion, walk about seeking whom he may devour. A lot of times, the lion doesn't even have to do the work. Animal will be drinking and um, I, I've even seen this on tape where the animal's drinking, the lion roars, and the animal freezes and cannot move for the fear. So the lion just walks up and gets him. Doesn't even have to chase him, right? So we're talking about cares here, right? And, and really what it's saying is not only is your humility in question, if you don't even try to give God your cares or practice that prayer, that, that, that you very well could be in pride, but you are a target for the roaring lion because it's who he may devour. Like you may be devoured. If you are walking around day in, day out, doing nothing from the one thing that we talked about, the one thing that is needful, with all your cares, right? Just being ridden with cares, then you're in danger. The Bible's saying you're in danger. And you know, this is a very interesting psalm in Psalm 37, just to point out as we close here, verses 1, 7, and 8 all say, fret not, early. It's really a war psalm. If you read this psalm in detail, it's, it's, it, it would be a really good thing to pray every day if, you're, if there's a lot of warfare, okay? But there, I, what we're focusing on is fret not means to burn not. You leave, leave somewhere just burning conversation. Burn not means do not worry. It means to rage not. It means not to be vexed. It means do not strive. See, remember unforced rhythms of grace? 
could do a whole sermon on just this. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight thyself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. We all know that, right? It shows you. It shows you how to get the desires of your heart by delighting yourself in the very next verse. This is tied into Jesus saying, walk with me, work with me, keep company with me, learn from me the unforced rhythms of grace. He tells you how to get yourself in the right place at the right time so he can give you the desires of your heart. He tells you exactly how he's gonna give you the desires of your heart in the very next verse. Psalm 37, five in the Amplified, commit your way to the Lord. Do you know what that means? Roll in the Hebrew, roll like you're, Rolling up one of those, those, those carpets. Roll, repose each care, each care of your load. Remember he said, my load is light. On him, right? Trust, lean on, rely, and be confident also in him. He's going to bring it to pass. But, you know, this morning going over that, I've always looked at the Amplified's version of roll or repose your cares. It's almost, you have to think about that, but commit them. Like actively commit them to him. This is what Brother Hagin used to call the prayer of commitment. I just figured that out. That's why he called it the prayer of commitment. The prayer of casting your cares. This verse right here. So what this is telling you in context with giving you the desires of your heart, you have to roll each care of your load on him, commit them, and and really what that's saying is that is faith. That is faith. And he will bring that godly desire into fruition. It will come to passage through you rolling and reposing each care of your load on him, really going back to him in Matthew saying, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. If it's not easy and light, it's not me. You're not being led by me. And so I just want to, I want to do this. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to say this prayer here. Okay. Before we don't start handing out yet, we're going to take communion to start the new year, right? But let's, let's, let's give chance, communion a chance to really work for us today by getting rid of the cares. We all have them, whether if they're financial, whether if they've got to do with children, whether if they've got to do with wayward children, whether if they've got to do with grandchildren, wayward grandchildren. Um, it just goes on, whether it got, has to do with our health, our own health, bad reports in our health. You, I mean, before, really what he's saying is for him to really be able to work for you, you've got to be able to come give it to him to the point where it's not a care, okay? And this is a scriptural prayer. And I, we talked about last week, casting, you know, casting. Um, as a kid uh, in Florida, um, we would fish in this bay called Padito Bay where me and my cousins were all within four years of age of each other, my brother. And we'd go out there and we'd have, uh, we'd have just shrimp, uh, not, not even live shrimp, weights, put a bunch of weights on the end of the fishing line so we could cast it a long ways. Put, put the shrimp on, cast it off, you know, maybe into eight feet of water and we'd have these casting contests. And it was great because you just don't know what you're going to catch in the ocean. 
It was something different. It was always something. They were always biting. And it was just incredible. We'd be out there for hours. But my mom was pointing out to me how my brother, when he would cast, you know, it was one of those little push buttons. And he had a little short one, a little short pole. He would actually leave his feet, you know, because it was always a contest about who could throw it the farthest. And you, you, you have to think of it like that, you know. And even this week, I was walking through that exercise mentally. If God says you can, to get rid of bad imaginations, you can have good imaginations. And I think you have to use your imagination for this prayer to some extent. And, you know, throwing it, I, but, but I, I watched God cut that line. And he just said, walk off with that pole now. Next time you use that pole is the next thing you cast. Cast it on me. He's watching affectionately. Is he going to give it to me? Is he going to try to exercise his faith here? Or is he just going to think about it all day? And so, and let it take seconds off his life from the stress. And so, um, let's just do this. Let's think about, let's just think about these things, right? Even another way, a really effective way for me, it was a little bit more violent way, but I would push the problem like into a large cannon in my mind. Not a person. I used to preach per- push the person. He, he told me, no, 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 don't think of it as in realms of, think of like even the casting, just a little piece of paper, that care, on the hook, that care, on the hook, that care, right? Or in the cannon, you remember how they used to stuff it in there? Light it. Mm. Almost try to feel it go. At least see it go, right? Your imagination is so powerful. We talked about Jacob actually changed the colors on the sheep by imagining them to be a different color. Changed the breeding and everything about those sheep. So we're just going to do this now. Father, we just come before you however we do it, whether if it's just lifting these things up in the air to you in our hands and seeing you take them as we start this new year. We cast our cares on you. She careth for us. Now you cut that line. And leave them for him in the sea of forgetfulness. And thank you, Lord. You take them. You take them. We commit. We commit them to you. Every single one of them. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.